So as Andy um, indicated earlier on, we've started a new series, a series called Trustworthy Sayings, um, looking at some um, of the phrases in the uh, letters, one to Timothy and Titus, um, which Paul introduces with, here is a trustworthy saying, or this is a trustworthy saying. Things that he wanted to impress upon Timothy and Titus for themselves individually, but also for their congregations. Things that Paul wanted the congregations to know they could depend on. That's what this series is about. We've got this image of a, a, a lighthouse. And um, before they were used as warnings of treacherous rocks uh, on the, along the coastline, lighthouses were just used to steer ships into port. They were a signal to the ship's captain that this was the right way to go to take your ship into port. And I think that's a helpful um, analogy for us because we can think of these trustworthy sayings that we're going through as helpful pointers to the right way to get to know God and to grow in faith. Today's trustworthy saying comes from 1 Timothy 4. We're going to read the first 10 verses of that chapter, which I believe is found on page 1193 in your church Bible if you'd like to follow, but it will also be on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales, rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Well, our trustworthy saying appears in verse 8. Some people think it's from verse 10, but I think it's from verse 8. So that's where I'm going this evening. And there we go. There it is again. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And in the message translation, which I find quite helpful too, Exercise daily in God, no spiritual flabbiness please, workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. 
So we're going to take a look at what that trustworthy saying means, um, but first, a bit of context. And for me, from this passage in 1 Timothy 4, the context is this statement here. Truth is important. Uh, Our Prime Minister thinks it's important. He's referred to the summit, hasn't he, uh, as the world's moment of truth. Paul thought truth was important. He was concerned that people in the churches that were being led by Timothy and Titus would be led astray into error. And a quick glance at a couple of passages in 1 Timothy make this clear. So in the first chapter, verses verses 3 to 6, he refers to false doctrines and myths, endless genealogies, controversial speculations, and meaningless talk. And then in the section we're looking at tonight, deceiving spirits, things taught by demons, hypocritical liars, godless myths, and old wives' tales, all of which he contrasts with the truths of the faith and good teaching. Now, reading that today, some of us might think, well, what's the big fuss about? Why is Paul banging on about the importance of truth? Well, today it seems to me that it doesn't matter for many people what they believe. They think, as long as I'm sincere, that's all that really matters. Dr. Maudsley, uh, a character in Diane Setterfield's excellent novel, for those of you who like fiction, The Thirteenth Tale, is having a conversation with his wife. And the narrator observes that he had given up trying to get her to believe only what was true. She had been raised to the kind of religion that could admit no difference between what was true and what was good. And I think that could be a statement for our own generation. That for many people today, what is true is not as important as what appears to be beneficial. We can't tell what the truth is anymore because it's not important to us. People say bizarre things like it's your truth. You know, if you want five plus six to be 10, that's okay. I won't judge you, that's your truth. In an interview earlier this year, um, Oprah Winfrey asked Meghan Markle, how do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? Well, I have to say in a previous generation, that question would have been considered absolutely ridiculous. There's no such thing as your truth, it's the truth, or it's not the truth. But that word has been so mangled in our time that it's become almost meaningless. Truth isn't about perceived reality. It's about objective reality. It's not about your facts, which may just be your opinions. It's about the facts, facts to everyone. That kind of truth, which in reality is the only kind of truth, is important. And God's servants must invest in the truth. So verse 6, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 Good minister or servant, the word used is diakonos, recognizes that truth is important. Such a minister will do two things. Firstly, that person will nourish themselves on the truths of the faith and good teaching. We could say that they have a diet of truth. They reject 
the junk food of false doctrines and myths and endless genealogies and the false doctrines of controversial speculations and meaningless talk, the false doctrines of uh, old wives' tales, this junk food, they reject that and instead they nourish themselves on the truth. But they don't just take it in. They serve up truth to others like a a waiter serving a nourishing meal to someone. You know, here it is, sir. Here it is, madam. Here is good food. It smells good. It looks good. It is good for you. That Greek word um, is, is, means to lay down, laying down the truth for others, pointing these things out to others. So that's the background of this trustworthy saying. Truth is important, and God's servants invest in truth by feeding on it themselves and by serving it to others. So now we come to the actual trustworthy saying itself. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So it's as if Paul is saying this, spiritual diet, truth, is important. But if you want to be fit for life, it's not, just, it's not good enough just to nourish yourself with truth. Diet in, in and of itself is not enough. It's not enough to serve nourishing food to others. You must exercise, you must train too. The Greek word gymnazo, from which we get our word Gymnasium. Diet must be accompanied by exercise if you are to be fit for life. Truth has to be worked out into godliness. The two things go together. You don't become a marathon runner by watching videos on marathon runners. You have a healthy diet and you go running. You train for the marathon. So we have these two things together, truth and godliness. Our focus is on godliness, so for the rest of our time, really I want to answer three questions. Um, And they are, what is godliness? How should I train for it? Sorry, why should I train for it? And how should I train for it? So first of all, what is godliness? Well, to be godly is to live reverently before God. If you heard the talk on Nehemiah 5 earlier this month, you may remember this question that Nehemiah put to the rulers of Jerusalem. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Or you might remember another phrase from the same chapter when Nehemiah says, out of reverence for God, I did not. Out of reverence for God, Nehemiah chose not to do certain things. He chose to live a different kind of life, to make different choices. He chose a God-pleasing life. And at its core, godliness is God-pleasingness, pleasingness, following God's ways, living according to God's standards. So that's what it is. Why should I train for godliness? The Greek words for godliness and godly occur 15 times in the New Testament, and interestingly, 13 of those occurrences are in the so-called pastoral epistles. 
1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So Paul thought that godliness was important enough to keep banging on about it to Timothy and Titus. Why did he think it was so important? Paul gives two reasons, the breadth and the length of its payback. So let's first of all think of its breadth. Godliness matters so much because it touches every area of our lives. Or in Paul's words, it has value for all things. Let me give you three examples. So firstly, relationships. So physical health has an impact on our relationships. A flatter stomach and bigger biceps might draw a certain type of woman towards a man. Or a slimmer figure and toned legs might draw more of a certain man towards a woman. Physical health can draw us into relationships, can enable us to enjoy those relationships more and make new ones. But consider the benefits of godliness. As we learn God's ways, we learn how to choose and to keep good friends. We learn how to build a healthy marriage. We learn how to develop relationships based on trust and characterized by forgiveness. We learn how to respect each other. We learn how to direct or deal with our anger. We learn how to recognize and deal with our jealousy. We learn how to live in a community of people who are very different from us in every way. Godliness affects our relationships very significantly. Or let's take work as another example. Again, physical health can impact our work. You're li less likely to go off sick, which would be um, a joy to your employer. You'll be more alert in fulfilling your duties. Some work may even require some level of physical fitness. So there are benefits to physical health as far as work is concerned. But consider the benefits of godliness. It shapes our attitudes towards work and the value we place on it. We see work differently because of who we ultimately work for, for God and not our manager. We work with diligence and honesty, giving our best, not simply clocking in and clocking out because of who we are working for. It shapes our choice of work as we lean more towards work that has value to others as well as supporting us financially. It affects our approach to authority. One final example then, we've looked at relationships and work. Let's take money as a third example. Again, physical health can have an impact on your finances. Actually, sometimes that impact is negative. If your gym membership, your equipment, whatever. But there are benefits too, aren't there, in, in terms of the reduce, reduced cost of health-related issues and so on and so forth. But consider the benefits of godliness. Godliness teaches generosity. It teaches us the value of things. It teaches us the dangers of falling in love with money or of hoarding it. It teaches us how to steward the resources that we have, 
how to treat those who have less than we have and more and more. So just taking three areas of our lives, three big areas of our lives, relationships, work, and money, it's clear that godliness, training for godliness, is so much more valuable than physical training because of the breadth of its payback. It has value for all things, for all areas of life. But godliness also matters not just because of the breadth of its payback, but also because of the length of its payback. Godliness holds promise both for the present life and the life to come. Simon Gibo is known to some of us. He's spoken here at church a couple of times, although not recently. Um, he grew up in Burundi where ambushes were commonplace, and he writes this. In one such ambush, the rebels ordered everyone out of the bus in what would seem comical, but for the seriousness of what was going on, two people managed to dive into the ditch on the side of the road without the rebels spotting them. One was a huge middle-aged lady, the other lying face to face. On top of her, in a seemingly highly compromising position, was a pastor. As the rebels lined up the passengers and shot them one by one in the head, the pastor whispered to the lady, you need to receive Jesus into your heart right now because we're going to die and you need to know where you're going. Well, mercifully, they lived to tell the tale. I haven't got time to uh, expand on this theme of the length of payback. And so instead, I just want to leave you with that little story as a prompt for your own thinking and for you to ask yourself this question. Do you know where you are going when you die? Because your story doesn't end with a box of ashes or a coffin of bones. And those who've put their trust in Christ know that godliness holds promise not just for this life, this present life, but also for the life to come. So let's have a brief recap. We've said that godliness is God-pleasingness, following God's ways, living according to his standards. We've said that we should train for godliness because of the breadth and length of its payback. Together, we've said that with truth, this combination of uh, truth as our diet and godliness as our practice, we can be fit for life, our life on earth and our life to come. The remaining question is how? How do we train for godliness? And it seems to me that Paul doesn't spell it out. Maybe he thinks it's too obvious to spell out. So I used my imagination a little, and I want you to use yours now. I want us to time travel back to the first century. And you're standing on the outside of a dusty training area, watching athletes go through various routines as they prepare for the next games, which were very popular throughout the Greco-Roman world at that time. And you signal for one of the athletes to come over. And at this point, um, ladies, you may need to avert your eyes 
as he puts some basic covering over his naked body. But he puts some cloth around himself and he approaches you and you're face to face and you ask him, how do you train? And he says, well, you know, I've got a plan. I've got a, I've got a schedule that's going to get me to the games in tip-top shape. He says, I've, I've got to be disciplined in keeping my plan because it's hard work and I have to make some choices. You know, these, these games are my priorities, so there are some things I choose not to do because I really want to get to the games. And you say, well, I'd be interested in seeing your training plan. And he says, well, I'd be happy to share it with you, um, but it's really only going to be of value to you if you follow it. So before I share it with you, do you, do you have any intention of following it? And you say, well, I doubt I'd be able to keep it, so I haven't really trained much before. And he replies that the important thing is to start from wherever you are to take that first step. And you thank him for his help, and he's turning to go away, and he says, oh, oh one more thing, he says, don't forget rest and sleep. They're just as important as exercise. And then he walks back into the training area. And you stand there and you watch him go back to the training round, training ground. And he hasn't given you the details of how to train. But you know deep down that it's not really the how that is your problem. It's the desire. You know that deep down, if you really wanted to, you'd, you'd find a way, you'd find the way to do that training. If you were convinced of the payback, you'd make it happen. And it seems to me that we may have questions about the how. We may have genuine questions about the how. They're, they're valid questions. There's a place for those. But I wonder if... The bigger question for many of us is not the how, but it's the desire. Do we really want it enough? Do we really believe that this saying, that godliness has value for all things, for the present life and the life to come, do we really believe that to be true? Do we believe that to be a trustworthy saying, a saying that we could put our lives on? that our lives could depend on. Do we believe that's a trustworthy saying? Because if we did, then I'm sure we'd find out the how for ourselves. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Let's take a moment to pray. Let's pray that phrase in a little bit for ourselves. And then I'll ask Rob to come and lead us in a couple of songs to close. So just in, in the quietness for a moment, just ask yourself honestly before God, do I really believe that this is a saying that I can trust? Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Do I really believe it? Let's just be honest with God for a moment.
Lord, we've sung about your faithfulness this evening. We've sung about your trustworthiness. And yet sometimes, Lord, if we're honest, we don't put our money where our mouths are. We don't, we don't live like people who believe this stuff is really true. And Lord, if that's us tonight, I pray that you will bury this seed, this, this phrase in this letter of Paul to 1 Timothy, bury it deep in our hearts and water it so that our trust, our confidence in what you've said grows and grows. Lord, give us a heart to trust you and to trust your word, to trust that this is a word for us today. Thank you, Lord, that you do feed us with your life-giving word. Lord, help us to take that next step and to translate that spiritual food that we find in your word into action and to train for godliness. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.